Good afternoon. Welcome to Hooting Yard on the Air with me, Frank Key. For those of you who don't know, the format of the show is that, well, I read for half an hour um, and you listen, hopefully. And every now and then, in between bits of reading, we have that spooky music, which um, is um, the Caucasian Lullaby by Slap Happy and Henry Cow. And and that comes on um, basically when I stop reading. And our trusty engineer, Alastair Dixon, turns the music up and then turns it down again. Brilliant. I don't know how this all works, but it's very good. So what am I going to talk about this week? Squirrels, emissaries from the beyond. In the latest issue of the superb chat magazine, Ruth the Truth, the psychic agony aunt, has this advice for Janice from Pembroke. The squirrel in your garden has a message. Skeptics and naysayers and other blighters will retort that the squirrel's message is likely to be give me some nuts or give me some more nuts. But Ruth the Truth and the squirrel fanciers among us at Hooting Yard know better. I can only speak from my own experience, but it's long been apparent to me that squirrels are in fact emissaries from the beyond. All that hectic twitching and scampering is evidence not merely of a high metabolic rate, but of the fact that their tiny squirrel brains are jam-packed with pulsating psychic energy. I don't deny that they want nuts, either to nibble right away or to put in storage for a long hard winter, but that's not the whole story. Consider those bushy tails. Have you ever wondered why they stick upwards rather than thumping along the ground like the tails of so many other animals? Well, it's because each hair of a squirrel's tail ends in a minuscule receptor designed by nature to pick up and capture some of the billions of psychic messages swirling around the ether. These spooky thought phenomena are invisible, fugitive and volatile, unnoticed by us humans with our puny minds. But they're the very atmosphere of the squirrel's world. Those quivering psychic nodes in their tails strain to pick up signals from those who have passed over to the other side, be they other squirrels, stoats, weasels, birds, insects, or indeed humans. Ruth the Truth in chat does not divulge what message the squirrel in her garden has for Janice from Pembroke, and it would be no doubt foolish to try to guess. But I'm foolish sometimes. Perhaps Janice is a widow and her departed husband has sent reassuring news from heaven, or more worryingly, a stricken plea from the pit of doom and desolation. Maybe Janice had a pet swan which succumbed to bird flu and it has sent, via the squirrel in the garden, news from that place to which perished swans are consigned when they leave the mortal world. It could even be that Janice from Pembroke trod accidentally upon a dozing bee on her garden path last summer and the bee is telling her she is forgiven. It's unlikely that Janice from Pembroke is listening to Hooting Yard on the Air this week, but if she is, I'd like to invite her to share with us the message she has received from the squirrel in her garden. 
It may be, indeed, that she's unable to translate the message from the argot of squirrels in which it's couched, and here we can help, for Mrs Gubbins at Hooting Yard is a skilled interpreter of these things. Um, the the um, Ruth the Truth and Chat magazine and her message um, to, or the squirrel's message to Janice from Pembroke are all absolutely genuine, I hasten to add. And also genuine, and I'm not lying to you, is that after that appeared on the Hooting Yard website, I received an email from Ruth the Truth herself. She was obviously looking for her name on Google. And... Um, she told me what the message was, but I'm afraid I can't divulge that to you. This is a piece called The Crooked Timber of Humanity. His frost-bitten limbs. Sappho in the doldrums. Bad gas and forts. If these phrases do not stir you, you're clearly not a devotee of Urbane Geistiger Geist, who was born 100 years ago today. If, on the other hand, your brain lit up like a beacon on hearing those words, you will be one of that little band who rightly acknowledge Urbane Geist as a key figure in 20th century popular music. Popular is perhaps not the most appropriate word, although he worked within such fields as jazz, folk, rock, hucha, pop and swing, Geist's music never won mass acceptance. He was only ever a cult figure, but it's to be hoped that with the celebration of his centenary, the ears of the world can be opened to his extraordinary accomplishment. Who would have thought that an obscure cadet in the Bolivian army would become, in the words of one perceptive commentator, a cross between Yoko Ono, Xavier Cugat and Mark E. Smith? We need not dwell here on Geist's military career, except to note that he learned to play his first instrument, the glockenspiel, when he came under the wing of the legendary Bolivian Army glockenspiel instructor, Captain Enrique Finister Belbacqua, a man of whom it has been said that if he did not exist, the staff of the Bolivian Army glockenspiel training school would have had to invent him. One body of opinion attests that that's precisely what they did, creating a fictional character not unlike the supposed agent George Kaplan in Hitchcock's North by Northwest, for whom the Cary Grant character Roger Thornhill is mistaken. This theory has never satisfactorily answered the obvious question. If Belbacqua did not exist, who exactly did teach Geist his formidable glockenspiel technique? After being thrown out of the Bolivian army because of his flawed cadetship and shape-shifting, Geist hitchhiked to Paraguay, where he soon fell in with a criminal gang, who, when they weren't cutting throats and pushing widows into the paths of oncoming trains, toted their piccolos and banjos around the market squares of provincial towns, playing an infectious combination of bluegrass and light opera. 
this raggle-taggle peasant band, became, improbably enough, the first incarnation of the crooked timber of humanity. <clears throat> Just clearing my throat. There has been much speculation regarding Geist's lifelong insistence that the groups he led, no matter how often he changed personnel, must always go by the same appellation, sometimes as just the crooked timber of humanity, and sometimes as Bolivian Army Cadet Urbane Geistiker Geist and the crooked timber of humanity. He took the name from Immanuel Kant's observation that, quote, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, unquote. And it's tempting to see this as a less-than-subtle comment on that very first line-up of evil-hearted robbers and violent thugs. Incidentally, Dobson once wrote an out-of-print pamphlet entitled Nomenclature of Paraguayan Bandit Musicians and Soviet Collective Farm Administrators Compared, in which he proposed that Geist arrived at the name during a tarot reading. This is piffle. Sadly, no recording exists of that very first group. By the time the LP Pelf and Cant was released, with its magnificent trumpet-driven melodies, all but one of the original band were either dead, imprisoned, or hiding in the hills. Geist was supremely unconcerned at the almost total loss of his group, demonstrating for the first time the ruthlessness which was to make him so feared. As Dave Pod puts it in his Oral History of the Crooked Timber of Humanity, you could always tell when someone had done their time with Geist's band. Their hair was prematurely white, most of their teeth had fallen out, and they walked, if they were able to walk at all, on spavined legs. They trembled uncontrollably, burst into tears every five minutes, and were unable to achieve closure on their issues, despite extensive and expensive therapy. Dave Pod's own band became a sort of rest home for ejected crooked timber, though artistically he's not fit to lick Geist's boots. Nonetheless, one should not overlook the fact that by throwing in their lot with Dave Pod, the wrecked survivors of the Crooked Timber of Humanity were given a chance to play at the Eurovision Song Contest, something that was unlikely to happen under Geist's iron rule. Although he did notoriously attempt to enter the competition when he kidnapped Kathy Kirby, but an international police operation foiled his reprehensible, if entertaining, scheme. Many of us, I know, would have given our eye teeth to witness that superb 26-strong lineup of the band, all accordions, trombones and pounding drums, backing the British songstress in the specially written song Black Rubber Beelzebub. His frostbitten limbs... Sappho in the doldrums, bad gas and forts. This was the trio of LPs that, for many of us, cemented Geist's reputation. Released within the space of a single month, containing between them no fewer than 100 songs, shanties and pop madrigals, they still stand as one of the commanding achievements of 20th century music in any genre. Vibrant, vivacious, vivid, and even at times deceptively cloth-eared. 
The story of those fractious recording sessions has been told many times, notably in the memoir by lutenist Julian Beam, one of the few band members who managed to remain in favour with Geist and appear on all three LPs, although his contribution to Bad Gas and Forts consists of a single string pluck in the middle eight of the Gregory Peck Protein Imbalance song. By the time The Crooked Timber of Humanity appeared on the television show Pop Fabulousness to promote its release as a single, Beam had been consigned to the outer darkness, as Geist always put it, and was hawking his lute-playing skills at a variety of seaside resorts in exchange for the price of a cake or bun for his dinner. By the time he came to write his book, his arm was withered, his prematurely white hair was infested with beetles, and he had all the telltale signs of an ex-geistist. When we recorded the songs on side one of his frostbitten limbs, wrote Beam, Geist had devised some new ideas. He made us sleep in tents on the sloping roof of the studio, wear bells on lanyards around our necks, and force-fed us a grey, tasteless paste of his own recipe. Every member of the band ballooned in weight, and the constant clanging of those bells sorely tried the sound engineer, who had to erase their clamour from the tapes. The tents could not be properly secured to the concrete roof, and there were violent gales throughout the month, so we got little sleep. Only the hammer and tongs players, all six of them, were exempt from this regime. They were put up in a luxury hotel and taken to exciting sporting events during breaks. Geist himself spent most of the sessions smoking his pipe and making lascivious phone calls to a floozy. Elsewhere, Julian Beam declared that no recording session ever had given him such great joy, and he continued to idolise Geist for the remainder of his life, until the day his pitiful, wasted body collapsed in a heap in a post office near the Blister Lane bypass, and he was pronounced dead. Reportedly, his dying words were, Urbane Geistiker Geist is a profound and matchless genius, and everyone should devote their lives to his work, as I have been honoured to do, despite the feeble and broken carcass you see expiring before your eyes on this post office floor near the Blister Lane Bypass. Geist himself was to die within a week. He had recorded over 120 LPs, played concerts in almost every country on earth, won the esteem of a dedicated troupe of followers, and been appointed as a Chevalier de Leo Sayer in perpetuity. Countless times it had been foretold that he would meet his end at the hands of a vengeful, dismissed member of the Crooked Timber of Humanity. Fingers were pointed, even while the band leader was still alive, at bassoonist Ned Nightshade, the man who had played such a wonderful solo on a reworking of The Snapping Turtles of Old Cadiz, yet whose heart had shriveled and rotted when Geist sent him packing. Suspicions were raised too about Hetty and Ingmar, the Norwegian teenagers who sang on over a dozen LPs but were sacked from the band when Geist got himself into a flap about something or other. In the event, the maestro was not murdered. One damp Sunday, he was wheeling a barrow of nettles over Bracken, 
whistling the showstopper from his stage musical version of Fox's Book of Martyrs, when a bee landed on his hat. Geist had always worn bee-proof hats until this fateful day, when a mix-up at the dry cleaners found him for once in his life unprotected from bees. In a panic, he stopped whistling and flew into convulsions. His head flushed purple, he gasped for breath, and his tongue became puffy. He did not remove his hat, the fool. He became snagged in the bracken, miles from civilization, and by the time the bee flew back to its hive, urbane Geist had become hopelessly entangled. Unable to free himself, he lay on his back, staring at the sky, and sang, Roll along covered wagon, over and over again, until his last breath. Roll along covered wagon, roll along, to the turn of your wheels I sing a song. City ladies may be fine, but give me that girl of mine, roll along covered wagon, roll along. Going home covered wagon, going home, for this cowboy was never born to roam. Long the road that doesn't change to that old bar 20 range, roll along covered wagon, roll along. Yippee-io, old-timers, heading for your ranch house door. Yippee-ti, old-timers, corral me so I'll never stray no more. Roll along, covered wagon, roll along. Come along, old pal, let's get going. Roll along. I mentioned um, in that last piece North by Northwest by uh, Alfred Hitchcock's film. And um, apropos of that, a new property development has recently appeared near where I live. And it's a block of flats called Marnie Court. So I suppose all the residents will be deranged blonde kleptomaniacs who try to suppress memories of having murdered a sailor when they were tiny tots. I do like the idea, though, of naming a block of flats after a Hitchcock film. Wouldn't you love to live in Psycho House, Rich and Strange Villas, Spellbound Court, Notorious Buildings, Torn Curtain Court, or maybe Frenzy Flats? Um, anyway, occasionally the Hooting Yard postbox is choked with letters from readers, all of which say in so many words, Frank, tell us what you're really like. My natural diffidence makes me reluctant to respond to such pleas, but today I've changed my mind. So here is a brief but devastatingly accurate pen portrait of Mr. Hooting Yard. Unlike Maya Angelou, I have no idea why the caged bird sings, nor am I particularly given to singing and swinging and getting merry like Christmas. On the contrary, I have an almost fathomless ignorance of ornithological matters, and the Yuletide season will find me moping and lugubrious. So, if I'm ever to write a series of memoirs, it won't do for me to plagiarise Maya Angelou's catchy titles. 
I'll have to come up with my own ideas, and the strain of doing so makes it unlikely that I'll be in a fit state to continue writing once I've hit upon the perfect title for the story of my own life. Last week I mentioned um, old Victorian adverts uh, for various brain tonics and things, and I, I do feel that if I was able to get my hands on the cordial balm of Syriacum, that might provide the fillip I need, and I'd be able to type away energetically and then regale you with anecdotes from my past um, and attempt an amusing yet cogent dissection of my current state and even look forward to the future with the aid of psychic messages from a squirrel. So I beg you to wait patiently while I seek a reliable supply of the cordial, cordial balm of Syriacum and when I've got some, I'll continue with my potted autobiography. Was Dobson a visionary? William Blake saw an angel in a tree in Peckham. Dobson, as far as we know, never went to Peckham. But he did see other but did he see other angels in other trees elsewhere? If he did, he never wrote about them. He wrote about all sorts of things propellers, dust, ringworm, rod McEwen, spillages, gloom and magnetism, for example. Dobson's pamphlet on Rod McEwen is one of his most extraordinary works. He took a single line from a poem by the gravel-voiced bard of sentimental pap and spun from it a dizzying exegesis. The critic Lavender Thule has praised Dobson's essay as the verbal equivalent of a bebop jazz improvisation, although, as she's profoundly deaf and has been since birth, one wonders how she arrived at this conclusion. One wonders, too, why she treasures a crumpled photograph of the jazz-obsessed armaments manufacturer Chevenix's Peaglue, on the back of which she has scribbled an illegible couplet. The line Dobson chose as the starting point for his majestic pamphlet is from Rod McEwen's poem Morning's Enough, where the cloying versifier writes, The hedgehog grumbling back to darkness is known by me and loved by me. In sweeping prose, Dobson notes that sleeping hedgehogs are often torn to pieces by badgers and ponders on savagery in the world of small mammals. Would Rod McEwen, he asks, declare his love for a badger with bloody fangs, fresh from gorging itself on the entrails of a recently slaughtered hedgehog? From there, the out-of-print pamphleteer poses a series of questions about love, badgers, blood, gravel pathways, wax being unstinting about something, pantomime, poisonous toads, the Duchess of Malfi, gloves, fruit with pips, fruit without pips, and the methods we use to measure horses. It is a bravura performance, even though Dobson refuses to answer any of the questions he raises. Indeed, on page 66, he writes, I refuse to answer any of these questions. You can put me in a sack and seal the sack with knotted rope and fling the sack containing me into a dark and horrible pond or even into the vast abominable sea, but I shall remain steadfast in my silence.' 
Why did Dobson choose to end that sentence with three exclamation marks? Do I know the answer to that question? If I do, will I tell you? Or will I, like Dobson, invite you to put me in a sack and seal the sack with knotted rope and fling the sack containing me into a dark and horrible pond or even into the vast abominable sea? If an object's form is roughly akin to the shape of a ship, we can say with some confidence that it's ship-shape. Ship-shape ought not be confused with shape-shift. To shape-shift, the verb, means to engage in shape-shifting, a practice of which various phantoms and ghouls are fond, the better to terrify us with intimations of the uncanny. Ah, I hear you say, but is that not precisely what might happen on a ghost ship where one may encounter ship-shape and shape-shift in the same context? I can only answer in the affirmative. Ghost ships are a particularly chilling subcategory of ghoulish terror, but what are they exactly? Some contend that a ghost ship need have no phantoms nor shapeshifters aboard, but earns the description merely by being abandoned, emptied in a mysterious fashion of all life, save perhaps for a few rats scurrying in the cargo holds. The classic example is the Marie Celeste, which owes its fame to Arthur Conan Doyle's story J. Habakkuk Jefferson's Statement, 1884. Then there are true ghost ships, ones crewed by phantoms and ghouls, often piratical in nature and usually seen at night or in gales. The archetype here is the Flying Dutchman, not to be confused with Die Fledermaus or Flying Mouse, which is a literal translation of the German for bat, and the name of Strauss's comic operetta of 1874, which has nothing to do with aerial Netherlanders, as far as I recall. Bats, poor innocent creatures that they are, have often been considered spooky and 